You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So lumps and bumps can really be divided up in a, in a lot of different ways. A lot of times color actually tells us what something is. Is it red? Is it vascular? Is it yellow? Is it um, uh, um, some other kind of unusual color? Is it underneath the skin and you can't tell what it is? Midline lesions are almost always more worrisome. Congenital lesions can have different implications. Anything that's rapidly growing and rapidly changing, you should, get, should catch your attention. And anything that is firm or rock hard should catch your attention because it may be something that's more dangerous. Um, so uh, one ARS question at the beginning, what is the appropriate workup for a child with a solitary mastocytoma? Cool. Um, I agree. I think there's no workup. I actually think there's no workup that's necessary for a child who has a ton of mastocytomas. I think as long as a child does not have symptoms of anaphylaxis and has had no systemic symptoms, a tryptase doesn't really help me very much. So if I get someone who has an elevated tryptase, it's probably not going to make a whole lot of difference in terms of my actual care for them, um, unless they're showing signs that they have systemic mastocytosis or anaphylaxis, and then I'll have them see an allergist in order to make sure that they have EpiPens and kind of good counseling. All right. This is legitimately yellow. There's almost nothing in the skin that looks this yellow, um, and yellow things have a very short differential. If you're like 80 years old, this could certainly be um, uh, a uh, lipid thing, and you could have xanthelasma, et cetera. In a child, this is almost always a juvenile xanthogranuloma. JXGs or juvenile xanthogranulomas look distinctly yellow. They can look red-orangey, and in, again, in patients with skin of color, um, it can be a little bit harder to tell, um, but this is a JXG. These are more JXGs. You can get kind of that orangish look in the skin. Again, color super important, super helpful. Um, and these are almost never a problem. They almost never have any implications. There's something where you can say, it is what it is. It's going to go away on its own. We don't have to do anything. We love reassuring people in pediatrics, and we love not biopsying if possible. Um, so JXGs, most of them are there within the first year or two of life. Then they mostly go away within the next couple of years after that. Um, the idea of eye lesions, I've sent hundreds of people to ophthalmology, um, and I've never found someone with a lesion in the eye. This one picture of a JXG on the butt is actually a patient of mine who had one JXG on the butt, and it was found by the ophthalmologist because they had a JXG in the eye to begin with. Um, so I don't send a lot of patients to ophthalmology. If you have a lot of JXGs, more than three is technically the idea. Um, but even with that, your risk is low of finding them. Or if you have multiple on the head or the neck, potentially send them to ophthalmology. Um, the reality is that, that uh, the chances of finding one in the eye is very small, but it's not unreasonable, and it's a very simple test to do. It's extraordinarily rare in the lung, liver, spleen, pericardium. Um, what I tell people all the time is I'm going to pre-Google for them. What happens when uh, you give parents a diagnosis of something unusual is the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go home and Google it, and they're going to read about all of the ridiculous worst-case scenarios, and they're going to see these children who have, like, JXGs that are filling up their liver and causing life-threatening problems. That is almost completely unheard of. Um, and so what I tell people is if you Google something and you're really scared about it, please call me so that I can go through it with you so that you don't have to sit home for the next six months before your next appointment and worry that something awful is going to happen to your child when it's not going to. Um, again, ocular lesions are really rare. The way they present is they actually present with bleeding into the eye. That's not subtle. Um, you bleed into the anterior chamber of the eye, and it looks like a red, kind of cloudy eye. Um, and it is uh, one of those things that um, is an ophthalmologic emergency. 
All right, more brown reasons. This is not quite as yellow, and it kind of looks like a mole. So you look at it and you're like, ah, maybe it's a mole, but it's a little bit kind of indistinct where it starts and stops. It often has a little bit of that kind of like peau d'orange look over top of it, like um, a little bit of kind of edematous skin. Um, and the key to these is you can do a very simple bedside test. You do not need to biopsy these. If you just rub it, it will turn into um, a uh, very obvious sign. So this is the derriere sign. I've got something on the foot that looks a little bit red-brown. It looks a little bit indistinct. I can't quite tell if it's a mole. I'm gonna take a Q-tip, I'm gonna rub the edge of it, and the edge of it is gonna turn into a hive. If you get this kind of hived, edematous look, then what must have happened is this thing released some histamine, and as it released histamine, it caused a hive in a local area. A couple of keys to the derriere sign don't rub the whole thing, okay? So if you take this entire thing and you rub it and you scratch it really aggressively, that child's gonna turn really red and it's gonna be really hard not to wanna send them to the emergency room um, because they'll look really, really red. So you, you rub the edge and you also rub through it. So if, you, if a child is just dermatographic, it can be hard to tell that they have a positive derriere sign because the dermatographism will just kind of cause a red um, uh, welt outside of the actual lesion. But if you rub through it and you rub normal skin on one side and then the mastocytoma and then normal skin on the other and only the mastocytoma flares, that is the diagnosis of a mastocytoma and then you have a diagnosis without doing a biopsy. Um, this is derriere sign again. Uh, the top thing is a nipple, just to organize you. Um, so this is a nipple. This is a derriere sign. You get this kind of indistinct brown spot. You rub it, it gets this vasoconstriction uh, and edema, and then a red wheel around it because it's releasing a bunch of histamine. Parents will all often tell you that this is happening on their own. Um, you also want to kind of prepare parents for anything that you're doing. Um, there's like a bunch of military people outside. It's freaking me out. All right. Hi. Um, okay, so uh, you want to prepare parents for anything you're doing. So if you're about to make their child have a ginormous welt on their abdomen, you want to tell them, hey, I'm about to make your child have a ginormous welt on the abdomen. It is the expected outcome, instead of you rubbing it and going, oh, crap, that was really big, um, because then they, they get freaked out by that. Um, so uh, um, prepare them for what you're about to do, and then do it, and then they think you're really cool because you like predicted the future. Um, yellow tan lesions, mastocytomas, Almost never worrisome, almost never something that needs a workup, almost no one needs an EpiPen, almost all of them go away. The exceptions to that are the kids who have basically almost no normal skin and they're just covered in mastocytomas. That child could potentially release enough histamine to actually anaphylax. Um, you wanna consider an EpiPen in them, you wanna make sure they're not randomly anaphylaxing. Those are the children where it's really important not to give them things like NSAIDs or aspirin um, or have them kind of have quick temperature changes because it can make the mastocytomas kind of dump out their histamine all at once. Um, occasionally kids will get flushing, occasionally they'll get diarrhea. If they are having those symptoms, you can treat them with chromalin um, or antihistamines. Antihistamines are much easier to get, chromalin is much harder to get, um, but chromalin actually specifically targets um, mast cells um, um, more specifically and it can uh, be more helpful. All right, so firm lesion behind the neck. You look at this and it's kind of something that's underneath the skin. I explain this to parents all the time. When I'm just seeing normal skin being pushed up by something, it's an educated guess what it is. And so if you go home and it does something weird, please come back because it may not have been correct. But this is a pilomatricoma. 
Hylometrachomas are like the cyst of children. If you see someone who's under the age of 10 or 12 and they haven't gone through puberty and you're diagnosing them with an epidermal inclusion cyst, it is not an epidermal inclusion cyst. You don't get EICs unless you've gone through puberty because you don't have that kind of sebaceous stuff that's building up within a cyst. Almost all of them are gonna be pilometrachomas. Pilometrachomas feel really rock hard because it's literally a ball of calcium. Like if you biopsy it, it's all this calcium in there. And when you press on it, if you have like a little marble of calcium under the skin and you press on one side, it's gonna like teeter up on the other side. It's called the teeter-totter sign. You can usually literally pick them up with your fingers, like you can get underneath of it. Um, don't rupture it, but you can get underneath of it and kind of pick it up and it feels like there's a little rock hard marble. It's often a little sharp at the edges, like there'll be little kind of edges of it where you can feel little points to it. Um, and uh, that's classic for a pyelometricoma. Often on the head and the neck, they can be elsewhere. Um, this is the quote-unquote teeter-totter sign from someone's Twitter feed, uh, where essentially you have this kind of blue spot that looks like it's under the skin, but it feels like a lump, and you can kind of pick it up with your fingers. Very, very rarely associated with genetic syndromes. The reality is that um, these genetic syndromes are very uncommon, but if you happen to have someone who grows a bunch of pyelometricomas, that's also uncommon. So if you have the child who's coming in for their fourth excision of a pyelometricoma, you want to consider sending them to genetics to make sure that they don't have early Gardner syndrome, which is associated with colon cancer, or myotonic dystrophy, which can be really catastrophic. Um, we just cut them out. They're actually really easy to cut out. They're really fun. You make an incision over top of it. You can usually kind of dissect around it. They don't need a really big excision, um, and they usually come out fairly easily. You want to ideally keep it in one piece, because if you leave a little piece of a pilometricoma in there, it'll often kind of regenerate itself. All right, so what is your plan for this lesion? Not an ARS question, but just looking at it, you see a lump on the edge of the um, eyebrow. It's like a pretty good look for a pilometricoma, but it's very specifically on the edge of the eyebrow, and this is a very, very good location for a dermoid cyst. Dermoid cysts really love the edge of the eyebrow, the kind of side of the temple, um, and they usually feel a little more fixed. You can't get underneath of them quite as much as a pilometricoma. You can't kind of pick them up as much. They're still pretty firm, but they're not rapidly growing. They're not kind of acting like a bad tumor. They're just kind of there. Um, the problem with dermoid cysts is that they eventually, if they grow deep enough, will actually um, eat into your bone and they will cause um, a little bit of kind of indentation in the bone. And so we do recommend removing them because eventually they can cause some destruction to the bone. The other problem is if you put a dermoid cyst on the uh, midline of some child, um, that has a distinct connection, a distinct uh, possibility of being uh, connected through a dermoid sinus into the brain. So this is actually the very first patient I saw when I entered um, after residency. And the parents came in, and there's a one-year-old who had a quote-unquote pimple on the center part of her nose, and mom had to keep squeezing it because stuff kept coming out. Once I told her it was brain fluid coming out, she stopped squeezing it, and then we talked about the implications of that. Um, but this is a dermoid sinus on the um, center part of the forehead. Um, uh, so there are some high-risk locations. The base of your nose is a high-risk location. I'll show you in a second. The back of the head is a high-risk location. The lumbosacral spine is a high-risk location. If you have a dermoid cyst or if you have a little pit or a little sinus that could be connected to something underneath of it, don't biopsy anything in the midline that someone was born with. If they're born with it and it's in the midline, image it before you biopsy it because you don't know that it's it's not connected to the brain, all right? 
So dermoid cysts um, on the lateral eyebrows, most common, uh, they, t they can erode into the bone. Again, if it's midline, please don't biopsy it. It can be very dangerous. Um, there is nobody who will ever fault you for being like, that's actually not within my um, area of expertise, and I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to let a neurosurgeon do that um, because that's their specialty. This is a child who actually came to me from a general surgeon, and he said, I can't get this wound to stop healing, and the child has had it for her entire life. And again, you look at it, and it is a midline ulcer that was there at birth. The last thing you should do is biopsy this, because what is leaking out of this is CSF. So this is a, um, a, a pit um, or an area of aplasia cutis, and the way that you can recognize that it's worrisome is A, it's in the midline, B, it was congenital, and this occipital region is really high risk for things being connected into the brain. And then also there's a hair collar sign around it. So your CSF has all these growth factors in it because it needs to make the brain grow. So in order to make the brain grow, there are lots of growth factors. If you have brain fluid that's connected into the skin, it then makes the hair grow. It's like natural PRP. Um, so essentially you get hair that overgrows around an area of, um, of a midline lesion. That is a really good marker that there is a connection into the brain. Uh, and this is called the hair collar sign. I'll show you some more examples of that. Um, the hair collar sign is really obvious in other places. If you had someone who had a huge tuft of hair in their lumbosacral spine, you're going to look at it and say, of course I'm worried about that because you shouldn't have a tail or a massive amount of hair in your lumbosacral spine. And the person on the right, like, you shouldn't be able to braid hair on someone's back. Like, that's too much hair. Um, people often ask how much is too much hair because it is ethnically different. So often kids will have a little lanugo hair or they'll have a little bit of kind of fine downy hair here but it'll match the hair that's on the upper part of the back. So if the lower part of the back kind of looks like the upper part of the back, that's probably fine. If it's truly terminal hair that's kind of growing out like this and you really could kind of braid it, um, that's much more likely to be abnormal and that patient definitely needs imaging. So this is another hair collar sign. You kind of look and the parents are usually really happy about it. They're like, oh, they have this tuft of hair that's so fun and I get to braid it, um, but it is not a good sign. Uh, this is a hair collar sign. Again, probably CSF saw this area and was able to kind of make the hair grow. This is often a sign of an entretic encephalocele or some either former or current connection into the brain. This is a referral to neurosurgery in order to see how to remove this. So membranous versus non-membranous aplasia cutis, this is very confused in the literature. If you have an ulcer that you're born with in the scalp, um, that's non-membranous aplasia cutis. If you have a little thin membrane over top of a spot like this, where there's a little thin membrane, that's membranous aplasia cutis, and this is more likely to be associated with um, underlying connection into the brain. So if you have that little thin membrane, although it's not a sore, it's not um, broken open, it, it is higher risk. Um, another subtle hair collar sign, they can be really subtle. Um, there are, they're not all connected into the brain. Actually, the majority of them aren't connected into the brain but because the risk is not super low. You do have to kind of evaluate them to make sure. Um, and again, it's a marker of cranial dysraphism or a marker of a little bit of extra brain that's sitting in the skin um, that uh, doesn't make you any smarter. It just makes hair grow around it. This is a more aggressive hair collar sign, uh, you know, not subtle at all. Um, and they tend to happen in the same location where guys go bald. So if you look at the kind of horseshoe shape around the side of the head, um, that tends to be where these uh, areas of aplasia cutis are. Um, they kind of start along the sides and then go around. Uh, so anything in that horseshoe shape is, is the typical location of aplasia cutis. 
Um, this is a hair color sign in a child with skin of color. You can see that the hair is a little bit different there. The texture's a little bit different, but same idea. It's a little bit longer, and although it's not uh, kind of growing out um, as straight, uh, it's just because there's a difference in terms of the hair quality in this patient. Another hair color sign, same exact idea. Um, this is more typical aplasia cutis where it's kind of like scarred over in the beginning. Again, it's midline. Again, it's congenital. Again, you shouldn't mess with it. Again, I probably would refer this to a neurosurgeon in order to see whether um, or consider imaging it yourself or refer to a pediatric dermatologist. Um, this was sent to me as a hemangioma. Again, along the theme of like not everything's a hemangioma, the first question I asked the parents is, was this there at birth? Did they hand you the baby and they had this vascular lesion? If they handed you the baby and there was a fully formed vascular lesion, it is not a hemangioma, and now I need to worry about all these other things. You then feel it and feel whether it's firm or it's soft. This was actually very soft. My second question to the parent was, was there extra hair growing around it? Um, because I'm now seeing them at eight or nine months and there's like regular hair everywhere. Mom said, yeah, it was really cool. They had no hair everywhere, but there was lots of hair growing around this. I now have the hair color sign. I have a congenital lesion. It's not a hemangioma. I know I'm gonna image. Um, and this is my MRI um, that shows a little piece of um, uh, vascular um, uh, birthmark that's sitting there. Uh, this was removed and it had um, a bunch of uh, um, brain intermixed with vascular tissue. Uh, more hair collar signs. The other part of the um, head and neck is that kind of continues down or the analogous part where you're kind of zipping up your neural tube is your lumbosacral spine. Your lumbosacral spine is the other place where you really have to worry about something either being connected into the spine or the spinal cord being connected to the skin. When you're born, your spinal cord actually lives low down in your spinal canal. And because it's low down, it should be like freely moving. And then when you grow, you should be able to have your spinal cord kind of grow with you and grow up in the spinal canal. If it's connected to a fatty tumor or to a part of a hemangioma or to the skin, that's called spinal cord tethering. And when it, um, the child tries to grow, the spinal cord won't grow with it and it, it's not elastic. And essentially what happens is the spinal cord rips at that level. Once you rip the spinal cord at that level, you have no neurologic function below there. You can't walk. You can't um, control your bowel and bladder. And we have an opportunity if, with kids at this age to prevent that from happening by diagnosing them really early. So again, this is something that comes into dermatology practices. You look at their lumbosacral spine. If it looks funky to you, you should consider imaging. And I'll talk about what funky is in a second. Um, hemangiomas are really high risk for spinal dysravism, as um, uh, Sheila was talking about before. You should definitely consider uh, an ultrasound, but you should highly consider doing an MRI. It's really the standard of care if you have a lumbosacral hemangioma, because the risk is so high. This is a very low risk lesion. So you look at this and it looks like a little tiny kind of um, capillary malformation or nevus simplex that's on the lower back. These are the ones that you generally don't have to worry about. As long as there's only one thing going on, there's not excess hair, there's not a dimple, there's not a pit, there's not a lump or anything else going on, usually these are fine and you'll actually find these in a lot of kids. But if you have two things going on in the lumbosacral spine, that's when you worry. Again, hair is abnormal. So what are the signs that something was connected to the brain or that there's abnormal um, uh, spinal cord uh, development underneath of it? There are high-risk signs and low-risk signs. So this is what you're looking for in your lumbosacral area. The high-risk signs are extra hair, 
dimples that are far away from the um, uh, perianal area, if you have to spread the cheeks and uh, the butt cheeks in order to find a dimple, that's probably okay. If you have to, if you don't have to spread the butt cheeks and you can just see the dimple sitting above the gluteal cleft, that's probably not okay. Um, so low down dimples that are kind of close to the perianal area are actually fairly common. As long as they're shallow and you, um, they're not associated with anything else, that's probably fine. Um, lipomas, skin tags, you know, anyone with a tail is going to get referred to neurosurgery. Aplasia cutis, um, dermoid sinuses or cysts like we talked about. And in the biggest studies what they show is that essentially if you have two things, so if you have excess hair and a deviated gluteal cleft or a dimple or a lipoma or a hemangioma, um, at least two things, your risk is super high and you should definitely be imaging those. With one, with one of the high-risk lesions, you should still be imaging them. If you have only one low-risk lesion, so a capillary malformation or a mole, um, uh, then you probably don't need to image them. And the issue is kind of when to image. So ultrasounds are sound waves that, that bounce off of soft tissue and then kind of get, um, uh, can go through soft tissue and can then kind of get reflected back. They bounce off of bone. And your body forms bone in your lumbosacral spine by about six months of age. So if you're considering ultrasounding someone's lumbosacral spine, they have to do it before the age of six months. And at some, at some hospitals, they force people to do it before the age of four months. So if it at all occurs to you that someone's lumbosacral spine is abnormal, if it looks funky to you and you're like, oh, I'm going to follow it, don't follow it. Just ultrasound it. It's way easier. Ultrasound, although not always picking up the hemangioma issues, is fairly sensitive for other things. Um, and it's such a cheap, cost-effective test. During pregnancy, I think my wife got ultrasounded 4,000 times. I think ROB has a brand new boat, um, and ultrasound paid for most of it. Um, and so the amount of ultrasounds that pregnant people is, are getting is really um, a ton. Doing one extra ultrasound in someone's lumbosacral spine, if you have concern about them having spinal cord tethering, is super cost-effective because you can prevent them from having a spinal cord issue um, because it can get fixed surgically. Again, not, all, not super common, but something that may come in to see us in dermatology. All right, next lump is a child who was uh, born um, uh, and about a week later comes to you, had nothing in their skin until um, about six, seven days of life, and now has this big growing nodule on the back. And you look at it, and, and it looks bad. It's firm, it's growing, it's painful to touch. Um, and this is um, either something bad or it's something that's actually okay, and it depends a lot on the history. So this child was like 10 pounds and had a spontaneous vaginal delivery. Um, so that is big baby, small pelvis. The baby's getting crushed against the pelvis. There's a lot of pushing, and what you end up with is fat necrosis. So if you take fat and you necrose it against something that's hard or you don't give it enough oxygen or you make it really cold, um, which often happens to babies after they've had troubled deliveries, they will often get cooled with cooling blankets. You can get this thing called subcutaneous fat necrosis. Essentially, the brown fat that lives in the skin will turn into a solid at a much more normal temperature than normally liquid fat actually takes a much, much lower temperature to turn into a solid. So you see these solid nodules in the skin. It's usually deliveries that were really challenging, some sort of hypoxia, some sort of trauma, um, some sort of uh, kind of long um, delivery, uh, and, and they get these hard, firm tumors. No one would fault you for biopsying this, although it is over the midline spine. Make sure it was not congenital. Um, and if you can find something that's far away from the spine, that's easier. But the biopsy helps to show that there's fat that's necrosed underneath the skin. It gets a distinct diagnosis. If you have any questions, um, refer it to someone to biopsy or, or um, consider biopsying fat necrosis. 
We usually don't biopsy it because it's a clinical diagnosis and it tends to kind of just get better. Um, but if you're not sure and you want to make sure it's not a tumor or a growth of some un other unusual site, um, then uh, have someone uh, um, consider a biopsy. So it usually presents within the first couple of weeks of life. Again, the history is really important. And they go away, but as they go away, the, all the macrophages that kind of eat the calcium release uh, or eat the um, uh, sub subcutaneous fat necrosis release a bunch of um, calcium. Uh, and the way that they do that um, is by activating the bone to release calcium. But the bottom line is you get hypercalcemia. And this can happen for up to a few months after the spots have already gone away. So we actually check their calcium um, every couple of weeks, uh, um, usually every week for the first month, and then every couple of weeks uh, until it stabilizes. Uh, and then once it's stabilized, you want to follow it kind of to going down. Um, and there's no exact uh, um, time course for doing this, but just know you probably have to check multiple times. When it's going away is probably the highest risk of the calcium actually um, going up. This is another really common one that gets misdiagnosed all the time. So this child comes in and it looks like they have an acne cyst on their cheek, but they literally have nothing else. There's no comedone, there are no comedones, there are no blackheads and whiteheads, and she's eight, so she's a little early to have like a nodular cystic area of acne. You look at it, and it could be a pilometricoma, but you feel it, and it's kind of soft. It feels kind of like soft and as if there's a little bit of fluid in there. Um, and uh, this is something that you don't have to do anything about, and it will actually go away on its own. So this is called, oh, cool. What do you want to do? This is a, were you paying attention, or is it the end of the morning, and you haven't had coffee in a really long time, and this person keeps talking? Sweet! All right, sorry. That'll wake you up also. Um, everyone is paying attention. So um, you should not do anything about this. Uh, this has the worst acronym in the entire world. I'm not going to say it out loud. I'm just going to plead for whoever publishes this next to change the acronym, because if you take all of the letters of this and then you put them together as an acronym, it's, it's not a good acronym. Um, anyway, I, one of my mentors, just a true story, just for a second, because you guys have been sitting here forever. Um, uh, we were at a talk about eight years ago, and she made the slides for this, and it was like 15 slides, and she had me give this 15-minute talk. And every single slide was labeled with this acronym, acronym every time. And I had to pronounce it like a, 10 times over. And every single time I was like, oh my gosh, I either have to like, you know, get fired from this specialty or just say this over and over. Um, but again, I call them facial aseptic, I call them facial idiopathic aseptic granulomas um, because I like that acronym better. Um, in French, the acronym makes a bunch of sense. I'll move on. All right. Um, they are inflammatory nodules on the cheeks of young children. They are not acne. They, they might be ruptured pilometricomas. No one really knows for sure. Treating them um, is really unsatisfying. Occasionally, I'll put steroids in them if they're really aggressively um, inflamed because uh, they, they can leave behind scarring. Um, and occasionally, I'll give them an oral antibiotic to kind of turn down inflammation. Um, but uh, generally, they just go away on their own. What you don't want to do is you don't want to cut them out. You don't want to incise and drain them because you're guaranteeing someone a scar for something that actually may go away on its own. All right, this is another true story. This is a nine-year-old who came in, and for eight years, her pediatrician had been following her quote-unquote hemangioma and measuring it every year. And they have a measurement of it getting bigger by a half a centimeter literally every year. If you know about hemangiomas, you know that that's not a thing. You should not be get growing your hemangioma after like six to nine months of age, and it shouldn't look like this. It really doesn't look like a hemangioma. And then this is where you feel it. 
you feel it and it just feels like firm indented skin. It feels wrong and this definitely needs a biopsy. Um, this is a dermatofibroma sarcoma pertuberans or a DFSP. The most important part of this word is the word sarcoma. Um, this is bad, it is a skin cancer. It's a very, very slow growing skin cancer. People get lulled into a sense of like, oh, it's fine because it's growing so slowly, but it will not stop growing ever. Um, and the removal of this, uh, they grow like um, uh, jacks. Did anyone play jacks when they were a kid? Like you drop the ball and you pick up the jacks. They grow like that with like these tentacles, like an octopus out. And so because of that, when you do regular surgery on them, if you just excise them, you think you've gotten it all, but there's another tentacle that probably went outside of your bread loaf excision. So the standard of care for these is Mohs. And if you're not at a place where they can do Mohs on, on a child, find a place that can do Mohs on a child because the recurrence rate of these without Mohs is extraordinarily high. Um, and usually even with a two or three centimeter margin, you're not gonna clear all of these. So standard of care is Mohs. Um, they really grow very slowly. They're very firm. They usually look purple um, and they're really disconcerting. All right, this is a child who comes in and it looks like it's a wart, um, but why do they have a wart on the outside of their heel and why is it so white? Um, this is a really white looking wart. It looks like a little ball of calcium in the skin because this is a little ball of calcium in the skin. This is where you can sound really intelligent for people and you can say, did you have a NICU stay or did you have hyperbilirubinemia? Because what happened to this child is they got stuck um, for blood draws over and over and over in the same location and eventually the body was like, forget it, I'm not letting you stick me here anymore, I'm gonna form a ball of calcium to stop it. Um, so this is a little bit of dystrophic calcium or a heel stick calcification. It's not a wart. The children are usually like one year old, uh, 18 months old. They're not like running around at the pool to pick up plantar warts like your teenagers are. Um, and it usually looks very white. You don't have to do about anything about this either. It usually comes out, but parents often want you to do something. If you just pare it down with a little 15 blade like you would before you're gonna freeze a wart, it usually kind of pops it out. If you wanted to, you could put a little bit of um, kind of urea or another keratolytic on it. Sometimes that helps pop it out, but they usually go away on their own. All right, heel stiff calcifications. Um, next topic is congenital nevi, and I think this is covered a little bit in, in other places, but I just wanted to give you kind of the pediatric perspective of congenital nevi, because um, there is a lot less that you have to do than you think you should do in general, um, because the risk of them is actually much lower than it um, is usually um, uh, given credit for. So we divide them up based on size, and roughly it's small is less than 1.5 centimeters, 1.5 to 20 is medium, over 20 is large, um, and uh, the risk of malignancy goes with the size of the lesion. If you think about it, if you have one melanocyte, the chance that that melanocyte gets like the 10 mutation that it, need, that it needs in order to form into a melanoma is extremely small. If you have a trillion melanocytes, one of them is probably going to go bad, all right? So the larger your mole, the higher the risk of, of um, malignancy, um, and uh, that's how we kind of guide parents in terms of what to do about these. Um, the other thing is that congenital moles actually don't have to be there on day one. Um, children haven't melanized on day one, so you'll have children who come out and they actually don't have all their skin color and their moles don't all have all their skin color also. So this was a child who came out and the mom was like, yeah, this showed up at six months of age. And I was like, well, you're probably just really tired because it's a mole and it must have shown up earlier. She then showed me a picture of um, five-month-old baby with no um, melanocytic nevus there. Um, and the reality is that congenital moles 
animals can kind of show up within the first couple of years of life. Um, although usually if they're big, it's usually within the first six months. You can also predict the, the future size. Um, this was done by um, Ashmar Goob, and uh, essentially there are different um, uh, ones of these for the head and for the body and for the arms and the legs. And you can basically look at a spot and kind of say, put it on the graph as to where they are um, at that age, and you can kind of extrapolate how big it's going to be in the future, which is helpful for parents, also helpful for planning kind of what it's going to look like. Um, it doesn't matter the background skin color of the patient in pediatrics. If it looks bad, it might be bad, okay? So if you're 80, the most likely person to get a melanoma is someone who's really light-skinned, who's gotten multiple sunburns, and they get melanomas. Not that it can't happen to other people, but if you're like three and it's just really bad luck and it's not usually related to like sun exposure, anyone can get a melanoma. So this is someone who has type five skin who grow this clearly abnormal melanocytic lesion. There's like a nodule in here. There's peninsulas growing off of the edge of it. It broke every single one of the ABCDEs. You should um, biopsy this or remove it in order to make sure it's not something abnormal. Um, Melanomas in children are very uncommon, fortunately. So most of the things that look like a melanoma in a child actually end up being spitz nevi. And then once you get to puberty, you start taking on the kind of adult risk of melanomas. The other thing about melanomas in children is that most of them are amelanotic. So most of them look like the pink growing bump or the flesh-colored growing bump where you kind of look at it and you're like, that doesn't look so bad, but why is it growing so fast? And why is it firm? Um, again, if you're not sure what a growth is or a tumor is in a child, either refer them or biopsy them to make absolutely sure you know what it is. Um, every once in a while, you're going to biopsy something and it's going to come back as molluscum and you're going to feel like, oh, I can't believe I biopsied molluscum. But just remember that happens to everyone and it's okay to biopsy some molluscum occasionally if, um, in order to not miss something that's more dangerous. Um, don't biopsy molluscum typically, so 99% of the time you don't need to biopsy molluscum. But again, um, if, it's, if it's a red growing bump and you're not sure what it is, you should consider biopsying it. Um, this kind of proves the point of amelanotic melanomas. You've got someone who's got type 5 skin, who's got an extremely dark nevus, and they still formed an amelanotic melanoma. Um, and this is kind of this red growing vascular papule. It looks kind of nondescript, but this is a, a, a really impressive melanoma. Um, this is a pyogenic granuloma. So if you look at this person's hand, they have a pyogenic granuloma. Pyogenic granulomas, or PGs, happen in children all the time, and they present as the quote-unquote bleeding hemangioma in like the two, three, four-year-old. Um, and you know that's not going to be a hemangioma because you shouldn't have a new hemangioma in a two, three, four-year-old. Um, but this is an amelanotic melanoma. And I have to say, I can't look at that and tell you that I can tell the difference of that reliably every single time. So what I do is every time I take off a pyogenic granuloma, I send it to a pathologist. There's no such thing as you took off a pyogenic granuloma and you put it in the trash because you didn't want the people to get an extra copay. Always send them to a pathologist. If you're going to take something off of someone's skin, send it to a pathologist because you may be wrong as to what it is. A couple times a year, we get back the report on pyogenic granulomas that they were like an atypical Spitz tumor. And, and you know, I look at a lot of PGs and I get surprised every once in a while. Um, melanocytic nevi in nail beds are really annoying. Okay, so these kids will come in and they'll have a pigmented nail streak 
and what you really want is you want the kid who has like eight pigmented nail streaks. They're all really light and they've got a little bit of melanin in their skin and you're like, they're fine. Um, so you just make pigmented nail streaks and there's probably nothing else wrong with you unless you have a genetic syndrome. Um, if you have the kid who has one solitary pigmented nail streak and it's rapidly growing, actually Sheila, I think, emailed out one that looked like a train wreck um, a couple of months ago to a bunch of us and we all had roughly similar responses. And this is the response that I'll tell you about this. I will tell you that statistically, this is almost certainly not a melanoma. And I'll tell you that melanoma almost never happens, if ever happens in the nail bed in children, like true melanoma. But there have been melanoma in situs reported. There have been atypical nevife reported. Um, but the reality is a normal mole in a nail bed, in a nail matrix is gonna look really abnormal. So while I can tell you that statistically this is almost certainly not a melanoma, I can also tell you that if it continues to grow or change, I as a parent would want my own mole biopsied. And that was the, that was the kind of end round of this um, uh, email conversation. It was really interesting actually. It was like two, um, fairly young, I'm going to put myself as young, fairly youngish pediatric dermatologists, and then two, like, a little older pediatric dermatologists. And it turns out the older you get, the more you can be like, ah, it's fine. I probably won't get sued in my lifetime anyway. Um, but if you're younger, you have to be like, well, actually, I might get sued in my lifetime, so I'm probably going to biopsy it. Um, again, statistically, you almost never get nail melanomas in children, but if it looks awful, you probably should biopsy it because it's not worth missing something that um, could potentially even later in life turn into something worse. You can disagree with me. Um, this is a non-distinct um, pink bump on the face, and this could easily be a xanthogranuloma. This could easily be a mastocytoma, but it doesn't derriere. You rub it, and it just kind of doesn't turn into a welt. Um, if you use your dermatoscope, it doesn't have that yellowish look of a, of a J J JXG. Um, and this is a spitz nevis. So spitz nevi tend to look like these little nondescript pink bumps. And I'll tell you also, statistically, a regular spitz nevis is almost always benign. But I'm not sure that I can tell you for sure that a pink growing bump is not an amelanotic melanoma. So in my own conservative practice, I still biopsy these just to be sure I know what it is. Um, and uh, I often will do like a shave biopsy to know what it is. Then if it is a spitz nevis, it's a conversation with the parents about whether they want to have it removed. Most parents don't want this here anyway, so removing it is not the worst thing in the world. Unfortunately, it usually requires general anesthesia, which is something that is, you know, more of a debate. So um, this was also a spitz nevis. This child was born with this, but again, it broke all the rules. It's got a black edge. Mom said that it was actually growing really rapidly. If you have something that looks funky that's growing rapidly, you should biopsy it to make sure it's not something abnormal, because in an 80-year-old, this is a melanoma 100% of the time. Um, when do you worry about spitz nevi? When are they the most worrisome? They're the most worrisome in older people. So, and older people in my world is above puberty. Um, so if you're over puberty, if you have a large lesion, if it's amelanotic, if it's growing, if it's asymmetric, um, you should um, really consider removing that spot. If you have a two-year-old who has a three-millimeter spitz nevus that looks really typical, is totally symmetric, is not growing, there are lots of pediatric dermatologists who will leave those alone because they don't want to give the kid a scar, and maybe it ends up turning into a normal nevus over time. Um, but the reality is if you have any questions or you're concerned about it, no one's going to fault you for removing something um, that has the differential that includes a melanoma. Um, spitz nevi, there's lots of genetics for them. They've gotten better at uh, kind of telling the difference between them. 
Um, other special kid circumstances. So moles on the hands and the feet, historically, if you Google them, they say, oh, you have to remove all of those because they turn into melanoma at a higher rate. That is not true. Moles on the hands and the feet are not any more special than anywhere else. They look more unusual under the microscope, but their rate of turning into a melanoma is probably the same. The same thing's true for moles on the scalp. Moles on the scalp form this usually like eclipse or cockade pattern where you get this like hyperpigmentation at the edge and less pigment in the center, or the opposite, you get more pigmentation in the center, less pigmentation at the edge, and they look funky, but scalp nevi in children almost always are benign. Also, even though they look a little abnormal, they can be monitored, they don't all need to be removed. Um, you just need to know kind of what's there. So this is the eclipse or the cockade nevus. It is symmetric, even though that it looks more like a fried egg. If it's symmetric, it's not growing, it's in the scalp. Um, this is the way scalps make moles and they are typically benign. Scalp nevi that are large are also really interesting. Um, so uh, this is an ARS question. So one month old with a congenital 12 milliliter scalp nevi, um, no other nevi, what do you advise as parents? A is the risk of melanoma is about 20%. B, the risk of neurocutaneous melanosis is about 10%. C, all scalp nevi should be excised. And D, clinical follow-up is reasonable. Cool, yeah, I agree. So I actually think that there are a couple of kind of um, think answers to think about here. So the risk of melanoma is not zero, but it's not quite 20% either. It's probably in the one or 2% roughly range. It might even be lower than that. The risk of neurocutaneous melanosis um, is also really low. And it turns out even though this mole is sitting directly over the brain, and I told you that midline lesions can have issues with brains, um, melanocytic nevi, the ones that are the most worrisome are the ones where you have a lot of satellite moles. So if you have 10 or 20 moles that are spread throughout the body, then you can think about that, that it might have been an early genetic mutation and some of those mole cells may have made the brain and then you might have mole cells inside the brain. And it is totally reasonable to follow this up. I can't tell you how many plastic surgeons I have had say, you should cut out your scalp mole early, we're gonna do flu tissue expanders and you're gonna have the child kind of go through multiple procedures and they remove this huge mole with a really impressive scar on the scalp. Scalp nevi often go away. They literally go away clinically. Even though there are still melanocytes that are underneath the skin, the look of them gets dramatically better over time. So because it gets dramatically better, you should not remove scalp moles for cosmetic reasons because the body may do your job for you. You do still have to monitor them because there still are melanocytes there and they still can form a melanoma. Um, but we see scalp moles lighten up all the time where they look this really dark color at birth. And by the time the kids are five or six years old, we have trouble finding them in the scalp. So scalp moles can go away. Um, this is again the prediction of a scalp mole. This is the child where you worry about neurocutaneous melanosis, which means that you have melanocytes that are inside the brain or inside the spine. They have a ton of satellite moles. The genetic mutation that caused this happened early in development, which means whatever formed the brain and the skin, probably both of those got the mutation. So you can have melanocytes that ended up inside the brain or the spinal cord. Um, and this patient should be imaged to make sure that they don't have anything in the brain or the spinal cord. Um, so neurocutaneous melanosis is melanocytes that kind of go into the brain or spinal cord at birth. Uh, the biggest risk is having more than 20 congenital nevi, although there are some people who say even two congenital nevi is a risk. That is a little controversial. The more you have, the higher the risk you have. 
Um, these are some of the genetic mutations that aren't that useful clinically, but just FYI, most of this has actually been figured out. Um, so bottom line, if you have a really large congenital nevus, it needs to be followed for melanoma, but the risk is not super high, so we don't remove all of them because the scarring can be really impressive, and it doesn't necessarily take the risk down to zero. Beware of pyogenic granulomas. They can look like melanomas and vice versa, so always send things to pathology when you take them off. Um, and if it looks unusual or bothers you, then you should definitely remove it. All right, you're in the home stretch. I'm pretty sure my blood sugar is like 40 at this point. So if I pass out, someone revive me. Um, so what is your management of the six-year-old with a new onset red patch? Um, you have both pictures on here, but when you first see this child, A is what you will see. You'll see this red-purple patch, and it looks like a new port wine stain, all right? So uh, ARS question. A, laser the appearance to lessen it, call Child Protective Services, start methotrexate, or this is an old slide called um, Sheila, and actually it meant Sheila Friedlander, but I could actually say Sheila McGinnis and um, tell you that I spelled your name wrong. I don't care. It's five o'clock somewhere. Cool, we're all over the map. Okay, so it looks like a port wine stain, but what you know about port wine stains is that they should be there at birth. There are very, very rare acquired port wine stains. If you see a child that looks like they have a new purple patch, a new port wine stain, it is almost always gonna be morphia. Morphia is very concerning because if, if you get behind the eight ball, it's gonna get worse really quickly and it's gonna turn into a big scar. So this is a child who has scarred morphia on her head the way she presented to us because the red patch is long gone, the indentation has been happening for years, she presented to us after she seized. So seizures happen because there um, can be some abnormal changes inside the brain um, and uh, we can use this as ARS also. What is your workup? Yeah, so actually the workup for this is, and I clicked the button too quickly, the workup for this is a brain MRI. Um, this is uh, not our patient, but she had the same thing. Morphia on the face, or on coup de sabre, or peri romberg, they are these scarring processes on the face, and they can also scar down the brain, they can scar down the eyes. If you see morphia on the face, it should be responded to immediately. Parents will be like, they just have a red patch, like why are we doing all of this? But we put them on pulse steroids and methotrexate immediately. If you're not sure whether it's morphia or not, just refer them to a pediatric dermatologist, or potentially a peds rheumatologist just to have them make sure um, because you really want to start therapy as early as possible. So um, uh, scarring of the forehead on coup de sabre is that kind of single line of scarring down the center part of the face usually or just off center. Um, Perry romberg is where you just lose all of the fat and they look like they're atrophying one half of the face. Uh, and it um, can be hard to treat, but they get systemic steroids and methotrexate and sometimes uh, more aggressive therapy than that. Cool, um, four-year-old uh, with four weeks of swelling, not responsive to oral antibiotics or topical steroids, what is your plan? Cool, actually that's a great plan. Don't miss hair tourniquets on the penis. People like their penises. If it falls off, everyone gets upset about that. Um, a hair tourniquet will actually cut off the blood supply to a digit or to a penis fairly easily, um, and that actually is very reasonable as your first plan. 
Fortunately, this has been here for four weeks, so you know it's not a hair tourniquet because that would have come to a bad place already. But again, always worrying about hair tourniquets is a very reasonable place to start. The other thing that helps you know that it's not a hair tourniquet um, is that um, the uh, uh, scrotum is swollen also. It's not just the penis being swollen. This is inflammatory bowel disease. So inflammatory bowel disease shows up in young children sometimes as massive swelling of the labia or the penis or the scrotum, and it is one of the presentations that definitely goes under the radar because they don't have to have any GI complaints at all. The majority of them actually don't have any GI complaints, and they go a couple of years sometimes before they even get GI complaints. The same thing happens with swelling of the lips. So if you get someone who has really big granulomatous kind of chronic swelling of the lips, you want to think about inflammatory bowel disease. They're tough to treat. They're tough to prove because their bowel may not be involved. But if you get granulomas on a biopsy, again, I probably would have urology do this biopsy and not me. Um, but uh, if you get granulomas on a biopsy and it looks like the pattern that you would see in Crohn's, know that this is one of the patterns of the way Crohn's shows up. Shoot, sorry. Okay. All right, and then last final question. This was kind of your uh, after-test question. What is the appropriate workup for a child with a solitary mastocytoma? Um, and I'm going to click through it. Cool. No workup. Awesome. Um, so, great. Uh, the bottom line is when you have lumps or bumps in children and you can't identify them and they're growing rapidly, someone should remove them or biopsy them or you should refer them to someone just to kind of make sure of what something is. Most things in children are benign, but when they're bad, they can be really bad and you want to catch that early. Melanoma is very rare, but often amelanotic. And if something is in the midline, do not biopsy it. If you have a midline bump that you are born with or a midline lesion that you're born with, um, don't biopsy it. If a, if a four-year-old or a six-year-old can't tell you whether their cyst on the back of the scalp was there at birth or not, don't biopsy it. Let someone else fall on that sword and make sure that it's not something that's connected. So, awesome. You're almost at lunch. Thank you. The overall performance of the speaker. This is like super socially awkward because honestly the voice of the person is so ominous. So like, how terrible was the speaker? How useful will this session be in your practice? <laughs> Do you feel like throwing things at them? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? All right, cool. Happy to take any questions. Um, have you seen bullous reactions in solitary mastocytomas? Absolutely. That is actually one of the common ways that they present that is really important to know. Recurrent blisters in the same place in a child is usually herpes. But recurrent blisters in the same place in a child that's not herpes is a solitary mastocytoma because it blisters in the same place over and over and over, um, and they can fool you. I've seen ones on fingers or toes where they don't leave a whole lot of skin lesion behind. They just blister every once in a while. Um, also, the ones that blister release a ton of histamine, and when they do that, they can um, uh, cause a, a really impressive amount of um, uh, 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 redness or flushing. How do you follow patients with scalp nevi? I follow um, patients with large nevi basically the same, which is that 
if it doesn't look really challenging in the beginning, um, and, and there's nothing that I need to biopsy in the beginning because there's nothing that's like really abnormal, um, I'll take a really good picture of it. I'll probably follow an infant up in like three months to make sure nothing's rapidly changing because that's one of the high risk times. And if nothing's changing at that point, probably every year, depending on how, the, how well the family is willing to follow it. If they don't follow, if they're not willing to follow it, I might follow more, more specifically. Um, okay, so what do you do with a, um, a not fully excised Spitz nevus? I'll tell you that in the Society for Pediatric Dermatology, this is a debate, and it was a huge survey that went out, and everyone said something slightly different. My personal take is, if you do transect something or biopsy something, the recurrent nevus phenomenon looks like a melanoma in and of itself. So if you get mold that grows back, it looks like a melanoma. So if you biopsied something that the pathologist has difficulty telling you is not a melanoma, but you know, finally calls a spitz nevus, and the recurrent nevus phenomenon kind of looks like it should be a melanoma, I think that partially biopsied spitz nevi should be removed. They also end up kind of getting rid of the spot for the child, and it just makes it so that there's no question or confusion 10 years later if a bump grows inside of it and people are trying to interpret it. Um, trying to interpret partially removed moles is really hard. I had a guy who wanted to get in the military once when I did adult medicine for like one year. He literally took a machete and cut off his congenital nevus on his chest. You can't imagine how horrible that looked when I walked in the room. I was like, oh my gosh, you're gonna die like tomorrow. Um, you have the most worst looking melanoma I've ever seen. I biopsied it, I sent it to our pathologist and she said, it's either a melanoma or something, somebody biopsied this mole before. I called the kid and he was like, I guess I'll tell you, I didn't know one biopsied it, but I tried to cut it out. Bottom line is recurrent nevi, if someone partially removes them, they look horrible under the microscope. Um, shade biopsy in an infant and toddler, there's actually a whole session on this. I'm gonna go through some procedural pearls. The bottom line with doing biopsies in children is you have to decide whether you have to do it or whether you want to do it. So like if you're not sure whether you really need to do something, um, then it's not appropriate for parents to hold people. So freezing molluscum, it's not appropriate to hold a, a, a screaming child to freeze three molluscum. Biopsying something to make sure it's not a melanoma, totally appropriate to have the parents be on board to hold them. Um, doing numbing cream, I'm gonna show you Buzzy um, during that thing. Buzzy is this little vibrating butterfly or um, ladybug, which uh, actually does a tremendous job of making um, the skin uh, numb without doing anything. Uh, you then give lidocaine also, but it um, does a really good job helping that. Um, and again, you really have to have either um, a nurse helping you, and if parents don't wanna help you, if they wanna be the good guy who kinda picks up the baby afterwards, that's fine. You just have to get office staff to kind of help you um, hold them. Um, when do you see a solitary mastocytoma resolve? It kind of depends on how thick it is. I think the little ones um, that aren't very thick resolve by eight, nine, 10 years old, and the thicker ones kind of resolve by more like puberty. There are some of them that I can't find by five years. Uh, my daughter has one on the back of her neck that I can't find anymore at all. Um, Angioma-like lesions in young children, PG versus amelanotic lesion. If I think that there's any chance it's really gonna be a melanoma or it's going to be like an atypical Spitz tumor, I will try to punch that out. I'll try to kind of get down to the base of it so the pathologist is not confused. If I'm 99% sure it's a PG, I do what we normally do with PGs, which is to kind of curette the top off, get it down to where it's just one bleeding blood vessel and buzz that blood vessel, and then the recurrence rate is really low. 
Um, I have seen BCCs form in nevus sebaceous. Uh, it's very uncommon. I had a teenager once who had his nevus sebaceous cut out and it happened to have a BCC at the base of it. Um, so that's a little bit scary. Um, I think in the beginning of my career when I was like, hey, the risk is really low, I had lots of people who kept their nevus sebaceous. As I've kind of gone farther along and realized that the teenagers want them out anyway, um, I think most people end up kind of removing their nevus sebaceous at some point. It's just whether you do it early or late. Um, shallow sacral dimples that are within the gluteal cleft, so like close to the anus, don't need to be imaged unless there's something else going on. Deep ones where you can't see the base of it, those should be imaged, or shallow ones that are above the gluteal cleft. So if you take the two buttocks and you've got the gluteal cleft here and you can see a dimple over um, above it, um, those are much more concerning, especially if there's something else going on. There's no hard and fast rule about who gets imaged, um, but generally if you have multiple things going on or you can see them really easily without spreading the gluteal cleft, um, then you worry about them more. I think that's it. I think my blood sugar is like 38 now, so I'm going to stop. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.